Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Today on the show, how employment in Canada could change by 2030 and what that means for employers, plus the path to IPO, what it takes to go public in the tech software space. BIV has a number of events coming up. The conventional banking business has undergone rapid technological change in the last decade. On April 25th, the BIV's Business Excellence Series is back with a panel discussion on just that, the next big things in banking and finance. Our discussion will explore the future of this landscape, policy challenges, the impacts on incumbent companies, and the opportunities for upstarts. For tickets and information, visit BIV.com slash BES dash banking dash finance. You've taken the hard decision to go and sell your firm, although the hard work really is just beginning. What can you do as a business owner looking to sell to ensure you aren't making mistakes as you go through that process? You can find out more when BIV hosts an expert panel on finding the best price and buyer for your business. That takes place May 8th at the Vancouver Club. For more information, visit BIV.com slash Events. We also have another event coming up near the end of May. It will focus on the second wave of cannabis legalization. On May 22nd, our Cannabis 2.0 event will look at and size up the opportunities in what will be an expanded market. We'll look at edibles, infused beverages, topicals, vapes, and more. For more information on that event, as well as all of our events, again, head on over to BIV.com slash events. The Impact Center at the University of Toronto tracked the results of 58 American software IPOs since 2013. From this analysis, the center was able to glean insights into really what it takes to go public. The report is titled The Path to IPO, or Initial Public Offering, and it also examines how the decision process around going public has actually shifted over the last decade. The report's author is Charles Plant, Senior Fellow at the Impact Center, and he joins me now on the line. Charles, good to have you back on the show. Great to be here. I want to start with what's changed over the last decade. To what extent have you seen decisions around going public or the frequency around IPOs shift over the last 10 years? Well, in fact, you can even go back 20 years when companies were going public with $10 million worth of revenue or even less. And and then over time, that rose. And and maybe five, six years ago, the average uh, value of uh, revenue of companies going public was sitting at about $100 million, And you could go public with as little as $50 million. Nowadays, the average tech company going public is in the 300 to $400 million size in revenue. It really is astounding at how much bigger they are. Wow. And I'm thinking of Lyft's recent IPO, and I think their revenue last year was $2.2 billion. Once the bar is... Yeah. So once the bar is set, can you go back or is that the new standard? Well, I don't know what's going to happen here because what the VCs have figured out is that if they keep the company private longer and keep plowing capital in, which they can get at a cheap price, they make more money. And so they're really holding off going public. And that's happened over the last three or four years. They sort of delayed going public. As they realized the valuations were so high, they were capturing more of that value themselves. So if the valuations drop, we might see them going public earlier. I don't know. That's a good question. 
Interesting. The report does note, of course, you've seen a 50% increase in the time firms choose to stay private. Is it solely driven by these investors and by these VCs looking for returns? Or is it in part driven by access to cheap capital? Well, yeah. There's so much capital out there for these companies. It's a wash because capital has moved out of fixed assets and buildings and things like that and has to go somewhere. So it's going into intangible assets. And it's fueling the venture capital markets who are able to put more and more amounts in. They're raising bigger funds. They're able to do bigger deals and keep companies private longer. Is this a hallmark of the post-financial crisis landscape? Is it really something unique to the last 10 years? Or did we see signs of this maybe pre-2008? No, I think this is, is, is a recent phenomenon. When you go back even 15, 20 years to the pre-meltdown, we had... Uh, big IPOs, but on a whim in the technology sector. The sector wasn't as strong as it is now. Now we have a really strong sector, really strong companies, lots of revenue, some of them making good profits. And so there's strength there and it's a regular place for people to invest and companies are getting bigger and taking advantage of large markets. But my follow-up question is, given that this is a recent phenomenon, does it then mean that what we're seeing really hasn't been tested in any kind of major downturn or major event in the stock markets? No, we're, we're seeing signs of that testing. I think you'll notice when, uh, when big companies put out warnings that their revenue didn't go, out as, didn't go up as much or that their profits mm-hmm. are as high as they expected, they're taking significant hits. So companies like Apple and Facebook have taken significant hits. So it's fueled by increasing expectations. I think that's where the valuations are sitting right now, is that people expect that upward trajectory of revenue to continue onwards. And as long as they keep expecting that, they're holding these valuations strong. So I think it'll take a a bit of an economic uh, downturn for the growth rates to come down, and that'll cause the valuations to come down. But we're really being technical here, I suppose. (laughs) Let's dive in a little bit into those expectations and what it ultimately takes to go public. What are some of the most interesting findings from your report? Well, you know, I was surprised that it takes about $2.50 of capital now to uh, get a dollar worth of revenue. So you've got this interesting dance going on is that companies are plowing money in. When you think it takes $2.50 of capital to get a dollar of revenue, well, where's that money going? It's going into losses. And the average company that's going public is losing maybe now 40%. It used to be losing 60% a year. So they're growing at 40% a year, but they're losing tremendous amounts of money. And we're almost approaching something like a Ponzi scheme, where the money's plowing in to fuel losses to get growth. But eventually that has to stop, and companies have to start making real money. And then we don't know what will happen, particularly with Lyft, since you brought that up. I think their losses are a billion dollars. Yeah, just about. And they, in their prospectus, said they didn't really have any path to profitability in the foreseeable future. No. And there's some numbers out. Zoom.ai is going public. Uh, it's not the size of Lyft. They've actually figured out how to make a profit. So every now and then you can see one. Very rare of those 58 companies I looked at. I think there were only four that made profit in the year before they uh, went public. So it's, it's, the, it's really fueled with losses, these enormous growth rates. 
I find that so interesting. And yet you still obviously have investors when the company's private willing to bet on these companies. And around certain IPOs, you still see a lot of hype and excitement around these technologies finally hitting the public markets. What's the psychology behind this? Clearly, if we're, we're looking at successful IPOs, success doesn't necessarily mean profitable. So what are people looking for? Well, they're looking for growth rates. You know, Lyft is showing a growth rate of around 100% a year. I think Zoom is doing the same thing as it's coming up. Uh, Shopify was showing over 90% growth rate. And it gets rewarded by having a, a valuation that's 20 times revenue. So when you can produce these 100% growth rates, you can get really strong valuations. And that's, uh, that's really exciting people. Because when you look out, if you can keep companies doing that for a while, you get some serious increases that are natural with the company and greater potential for profits at a bigger scale. Would Amazon be sort of the quintessential example, a company that has grown at an amazing clip, really dominated and pushed into new markets like the grocery space and the retail space, but has seen losses? Investors don't really seem to care. No, they don't care at all. In fact, Amazon used to say, oh, we don't, we don't really know when, when or if we'll make money. Yeah. We're just keeping on keeping the growth going. And that's why I'm worried about it being a Ponzi scheme, because a lot of these companies will never be able to figure out whether they've got good economics for a business that can sustain some growth with profitability. Because without that, you just, you know, it, it becomes a last man standing type of game and the last man standing will lose everything. Do you see an element of trying to time the IPO around sort of the, the biggest and juiciest revenue numbers? So maybe holding off until a company's at its peak and can go public when it's showing pretty amazing growth numbers? Yeah, and that's happening more and more. Well, you could look at left at, at over $2 billion worth of revenue and, and Uber's going to come out. Who knows what those numbers are going to be? Much, much bigger companies. They get more credibility in the market, able to drive higher multiples and higher valuations because of their size. So, you know, the, the market is favoring large scale, large growth in a way that hasn't before. At some point, I imagine this level of growth, it's not necessarily sustainable. Companies mature and that's not necessarily a bad thing. They focus on other things like, you know, getting yeah. into the black ink as opposed to the red ink. What does your report show around companies and their expected growth rates and maybe what happened in reality or adjustments that needed to be made? Well, you know, as, you, as, your, as your revenue is somewhere around 10 to $50 million a year, you can grow at 80% uh, a year. And as you get larger, the 50 to 250, you're growing at 55 and above 250 million, your, your growth rate is, is dipping down. What's, what the market is seeing is that it is very difficult to produce the sort of numbers that Facebook can produce with consistently strong growth rates at an enormous size. And so we're, we're in a perfect point right now with all these large companies. They're large enough to be exciting and still growing enough to be exciting that we have a whole frothy mix of companies going public over this next year, I think. Mm. Yeah, tell me a little bit about more what you're expecting in 2019. I mentioned off the top some really exciting ones, you know, Uber's coming, Airbnb, rumors around companies like Slack even finally going yep. public. We'll see if that actually happens. Yeah, and Zoom. And Zoom, yeah, as you mentioned. I think Bumble's another one as well, Pinterest too. Yeah. Does it stand to reason you're just going to see a continuation of all of the trends highlighted in your report? So really big growth rates, significant losses potentially, and higher and higher valuations? 
I think so. I think some of them will figure it out how to make money, and those will be the ones that, that will look good in the very, very long term. And there'll be a lot of acquisitions, I think, happening as well, as the ones that have sort of tailed off their growth rates get acquired by others. But there's, the I think, over 150 uh, unicorns in the U.S., so that's an enormous backlog of companies that are going to have to go public at some point in time because the VCs can't hold them private forever. Right. Now, your report hones in on these software companies. I'm curious, is this what you're seeing unique to software companies or do you see it in any other sector? Well, you know, different sectors perform differently. And so the, the pharmaceutical sector isn't fueled by growing revenues. It's fueled by promise of discovery and approvals and things like that. Mm. So it still has high and strong valuation. It's difficult for other sectors like medical technologies to be able to produce these types of growth rates and these large uh, market caps as a result of large amounts of revenue. So you, it's particular, I think, to the software sector that we're seeing all this frothy market development and also e-commerce, which is a sector I haven't looked at the numbers at, but just like Amazon, there's lots of potential in e-commerce in the same way. What are some of the broader implications or potential implications of your findings? Um, well, I think companies have to focus more on, on growth and be um, more aggressive about how they lose money and how they fuel that growth. There is a tendency in Canada to think of being capitally efficient and trying to grow efficiently. That's not what is making companies work in the U.S. And I think that's one of the biggest implications, uh, particularly here. So you have to throw caution to the wind now. And if you don't, somebody else in your market will and will beat you to the market by having more money to spend on more losses to fuel more marketing and sales. And so you have to play this capital game if you're trying to create a world-class company. So Canadian firms might be falling behind because they're being efficient with how they spend capital. And that's yeah. kind of a bad thing in this context, it sounds like. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it is. <laughs> It's um, it's it's fascinating to watch, and you know that it plays to our conservatism. Sure, and my follow-up question to that: we've spoken about it before many times. Is the conservatism not just on the part of Canadian entrepreneurs, but also on the part of Canadian VCs and lenders? If you have a Canadian entrepreneur, a software company, let's say, looking to spend capital inefficiently to grow really quickly. Can they find people willing to take that bet here in Canada, or do they have to turn south? Well, um, interestingly enough, I'm just doing the stats for the next or one of the next publications I've got on U.S. VCs and their investments in Canada. And there are more U.S. VCs investing in Canada than there are Canadian VCs. And that was a big surprise to me. Very few Canadian firms just get Canadian money anymore. Typically, they're getting Canadian and U.S. and maybe some foreign money at the same time. So the, the places they get capital, uh, are it's wider than it has been, so there's more capital available. And also, will be influenced by the external investors who will be pushing for higher raises, uh, higher growth rates, and uh, more losses in order to fuel growth. That sounds like a really interesting report. We'll have to have you back to talk about that. Great. I'll look forward to it. Thanks again for joining the show. Thanks. That's Charles Plant, Senior Fellow at the Impact Center. We've been talking about his latest impact brief called The Path to IPO.
It's time to turn and face the strange. The Brookfield Institute for Innovation and Entrepreneurship has released the first report in a series that looks at employment in 2030. Jessica Thornton, one of the report's authors, and the report's called Changes Impacting the Future of Employment in Canada, joins me now to discuss this further. She's also the Senior Projects Designer and Futures Lead at the Institute. Jessica, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So what are some of the the broader areas of change that we're looking at and how might they disrupt employment in Canada? Great question. Um, So Turn and Face the Strange is really looking to push people to consider the trends that are a little less obvious and not often connected conversations about the future of work. Uh, Traditionally, the future of work these days seems to very much focus on discussions around automation and technological change. But what we did with this uh, with this research is looked at broader trends related to globalization, demographic change, environmental sustainability, urbanization, increasing inequality, and political uncertainty, as well as some others, um, to very much understand what are the broad range of changes afoot, and and really what could happen if some of these um, connect together uh, and drive change um, at the same time, and so. It, uh, happy to jump into examples, but I'll uh, let you jump in. Well, I'm I'm curious, just from a jumping off point, how difficult is it to actually kind of predict where we're going? You mentioned the pace of technological change and how disruptive that can be. How difficult is it to look not just 10 years out, but I guess 11 years out for 2030 or even beyond that? Yeah, great question. And so, I mean, what this work is is doing is presenting a, a variety of possibilities of how the future could look. Um, no one can really predict the future with any certainty, uh, just because there are so many different variations of what could come to fruition. And so what we did for this work is use um, a method called horizon scanning that's part of a research method related to strategic foresight, which is an entire practice that's dedicated to understanding how to study the future and plan for what might be to come. But a huge sort of basis of that thinking is that in order to plan for what is to come, it's important to consider all the possible options Um, because sometimes that, you know, weak signal of change might actually turn out to be a huge driving force in the future. Or sometimes, you know, emerging trends that you maybe hear a lot about right now could pitter out depending on what else is happening. And so what we're really trying to do with this work is look at a broad range of mature, emerging, and weaker signals of change that have the potential um, and really asking our readers to say, what if this isn't meant to be predictive or say this is what the world will look like in 2030 so much as these are the possibilities of what the world could look like. And one of those possibilities highlighted in the report is augmented humans. Tell me a little bit about that and what that might mean for the future of work in Canada. Yes, absolutely. So augmented humans um, is a trend that's looking at the potential for using uh, brain uh, implants. And so there's a startup called Kernel that's currently developing a neural prosthetic that will expand human cognition by uniting our minds and bodies with machine interfaces. Meanwhile, there's American scientists who recently connected the brains of three people through something called BrainNet, enabling them to share their thoughts with each other. So what we wanted to ask is what could happen 
if technologies like this become more widely adopted. You know, currently right now, only 66% of, or 66% of Americans say that they would definitely not want to have a brain chip implant. So right now, this is looking, this is one of our weak signals of change. But however, what we wanted to do is bring this idea to the forefront to say, what could happen if more brain enhancements did become more available? Imagine the potential disruption for education programs if you could just upload information directly, or could older workers become more enhanced with their mental capacities and continue to work longer? Um, So I think we're just looking at what are the broad range of new products and services that might emerge if this is something that we all have, or at least some of us have. Yeah, so interesting. What are some of your stronger signals of change? Um, so we have a broad range of uh, mature, more mature trends. So, um, so within that, um, looking at, for instance, one of our demographic changes is working retirement. And so this is the idea that um, as you know, the Canadian population is aging, um, Canadians are tending to work longer. So right now, for instance, the proportion of um, Canadians who are over uh, the age of 65 is actually more and more Canadians over the age of 65 are still working. And so as, you know, we continue to see um, more and more people celebrate their 100th birthday, um, you know, there's studies that are suggesting not all individuals will be able to actually afford um, to live that long in terms of their savings from retirement. And so one of the questions we were looking at here is, as we're starting to already see Canadians um, continue to work beyond the traditional retirement age, what would the retirement age look like in the future? And how would employers potentially accommodate a workforce that spans multiple generations? Um, and how would workers that, you know, are in their you know, mid-70s impact the demand for products and services that are currently used by retirees. So that was one of our more mature trends that we were looking at. It's something that I think we probably all have an example of, you know, someone in our lives that, you know, has hit that 65 retirement age, but continuing to still, you know, work a little bit here and there. Absolutely. Another trend that might speak to Canadians very relevant here in Canada would be urbanization. We have so much of our population here in Canada concentrated in cities and then a lot of vast open space, some of it, to be fair, of course, uninhabitable. And we see this trend around the world. How might something like urbanization disrupt how we work and where we work? That's a great, um, great point. So, yeah, urbanization is a, a very interesting one. That's sort of a trend that's driving change globally. Uh, right now, we're seeing 50% of the population living in cities. Um, in Canada, cities are our main hubs for economic activity. Um, a fact highlighted in our most recent uh, NEPTIS Foundation study showing that a hyper-concentration of knowledge economy jobs situated in somewhere like downtown Toronto. So as, con- as cities continue to grow in economic importance, they're also rising in affordability issues for residents. And so what's really interesting about how this trend is playing out in Canada is that we're actually seeing a significant increase of our suburban areas. So two-thirds of Canadians now live in suburbs, a number that's increasing faster than Canada's overall population. So as employers continue to relocate their offices in urban centers and workers continue to live out in the suburbs, we have questions about what that will do to our overall productivity and how this mature trend might drive demand for infrastructure investments and economic activity-related industries. 
you're on the line in Toronto. I'm here in studio in Vancouver, two areas that have grappled over the last couple of years with some acute affordability challenges. I'm curious about the trend of telecommuting or working remotely, maybe being based in a suburb or a very remote part of a country around the world and not actually relocating to an urban area. Why don't you think we've seen more of that? What's the draw of, of being physically together even in this digitally connected age? Yeah, it's interesting. So a few of our trends actually touch sort of around the surface of that. We're seeing, uh, you know, more and more employers such as Dell and Salesforce who are making it possible for workers to work really anywhere in the world um, remotely. So providing that opportunity. Um, you know, one of our trends looks at, you know, work-life integration and that, you know, our work lives and personal lives are melding so that we're no longer, you know, working a traditional nine to five day. We might be working a little here, a little there. And depending on, you know, if you are working in with a global team, that might also have to adjust accordingly. But what is really interesting with that is how it sort of uh, pushes up against uh, two of our other trends, one which is called Connected But Lonely, which is looking at the rising instances of uh, mental health challenges related to technological connections. And so the idea that, you know, people are becoming, uh, have never been more connected than ever before because of the internet, but are also then uh, becoming lonely because they don't have that face-to-face uh, -face interaction, which sort of brings us to one of our other trends um, that we call digital detox, which is just looking at the rising increase of people wanting to actually disconnect, people who are opting to go back to flip phones so they don't have, you know, their work, their work email or their connectivity apps available to themselves anymore. And we're seeing places like France who are actually giving workers the right to not have to check their email during traditional workdays. So there's a very interesting confluence of various trends sort of pushing up against each other around this topic in terms of the idea of working remotely because potentially it's easier if you know you don't want to commute, but also needing that human to human connection. And so we have asked questions about whether or not, you know, the ability to actually work in the office with teams will become um, an incentive for workers in the future, whether or not jobs that, you know, really um, reduce the amount of hours you are required to be connected on a device or in front of a screen might actually become um, very attractive to employees in the future. Mm. You mentioned at the start that this report is in part designed to get employers thinking and asking what if. Beyond that, what should employers be starting to do at this point in time to prepare for some of the things we might see disrupt the way we work? Um, that's a great question. So with this report, which is the first uh, in a series related to our project called Employment in 2030, we're really trying to set um, sort of a, a landscape analysis of what are the broad range of trends and, and what could that mean. But what we haven't really done with this is sort of been prescriptive of and this is what we should do in, in, in response. And so while we don't, um, you know, have all the answers yet and we're not, you know, going too deep on any one of these ideas, what we are doing with this work is using it to frame a series of expert workshops that we're holding across Canada this spring, where we're inviting um, our participants to come and tell us how they think various jobs and skills will change in the future. The data from these workshops will be used um, for a machine learning algorithm, which will then project potential impacts across the entire labor market and then provide a skills forecast. So the end of this project, um, which will be in early 2020, will actually have a forecast of 
what we believe this research tells us are the most in-demand skills, as well as some thinking around what that means for the current uh, programs and policies supporting um, you know, transition to the innovation economy. So that work, uh, so this is really only the first step in a broader series. And so we look forward to sharing those, resu- re- those results when they're, when they're ready. Jessica, pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much for your insight on this really important topic. I look forward to having you back on the show as you work toward that skills assessment. That sounds like it'll be very interesting. Thanks so much for having me. That's Jessica Thornton. She's one of the report authors. The report we've been discussing, of course, is Turn and Face the Strange Changes Impacting the Future of Employment in Canada, put out just very recently by the Brookfield Institute for Innovation and Entrepreneurship. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV today. You can get notified of new episodes by subscribing to us on iTunes or Stitcher. You can also listen to our roster of archive of content at BIV.com slash audio. And of course, more business news, be it in audio, video, or written form is available at BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks again for listening. 